Hello, my name is Michael, and uh, don't worry, you're in the right spot. I'm not the one who's actually doing this. Uh, I'll introduce Elizabeth in a second. Um, I just uh, kind of begged for the opportunity to uh, introduce my friend, um, and uh, and also to just steal a, a moment to introduce myself, maybe put a face to a name for any of you who have maybe been communicating a little bit with. I'm Michael Munson. I am the coordinator for uh, spiritual direction in VCUKI, and uh, and I just wanted to kind of throw it out there to you. There's probably you know being coming to listen to this topic, uh, a lot of kind of kindred spirits in here. Uh, thinking about how do we uh, live a life of transformation? How do we connect with this intimate God and and things like spiritual direction and spiritual formation? Um, kind of have uh, kind of touch on this stuff. And so, um, if you're interested in any of those things um, and are looking for resources or looking for training um, in any of those areas, I would love to just have conversations with you. And so, uh, you can uh, find some of that stuff on VineyardTraining.org, but you can also just send me an email or find me. Uh, after if you're interested and just want to find out what's available. Um, but uh, but that's that's my bit. Otherwise, um, Elizabeth is going to be joining us. Elizabeth actually is um, just a, a, a long friend uh, of ours over here in, uh, in England, in the vineyards here. Um, she's been helping us train spiritual directors for the last couple of years. And uh, I won't take up any more of your time. Elizabeth. <laughs> take a moment and look around the room. It is great to see you all here this morning, I mean this afternoon. <laughs> um, this has been such an amazing conference and I have been amazed since the get-go on Tuesday night how God has woven a thread through this conference around the theme of image, self-image, worth, um, and believing what God says about us. Um, and just for those of you perhaps who missed some of the morning sessions that Putty Putman did, or those of you that might be listening online, let me just share with you some of the things that just really struck me, and they struck me because this is exactly my heart and what God placed upon my heart when he gave me the topic for this afternoon. Um, that we are image bearers of the living God, and therefore we're inherently worthy. Um, and that we hold a lot of lies in our heads that keep us from, from uh, really stepping into that, that we need to let go of. And that the Christian journey is not about trying to kill the bad part in us because we are already good because of what Christ has done for us. Um, but as we open ourselves up to God and allow him to renew our minds and to rewire our brains from what they've been trained to throughout our lives, that, that we then are transformed to become more like Christ in our living. And so it's been fantastic to be here these last two days. And as we've joined together and had the, these themes and these truths proclaimed over us in the, in the very tangible presence of God and with one another, I think it's pretty easy or relatively easy for us to, yeah, go, yeah, I'm going to stand in these truths about me. But I wonder, once we get home and we're back in the crucible of real life and ministry, if it will seem quite so easy then. And so, as I looked through the little blurb that I did up for the seminar, and I thought, I wonder what it is that's drawn you here today. And I imagine it's very different for, for you than others. Perhaps 
the Holy Spirit just said, you need to go to F5 today. Um, perhaps it was something on here is this transformation that has been mentioned so often these last two days. Um, perhaps it's something on our image of God, our perception of God and ourselves. Um, perhaps that word, shame, caught you. Or perhaps someone who knows you and knows me and knows my heart in the contemplative said, oh, come with me, because there's something here in being silent and still in the presence of God that is transformative. So I hope today we can touch on, on all of those things. And I thank Putty for laying the groundwork so that we can, can do some real heart stuff. Because as I listen to him and, and I hear him say, yeah, you know, we, you need to, to get rid of those lies that, that have caught you. And I go, yes, we need to do that. But how do we do it? Um, I, my, my deep conviction and experience is that that happens as what we know up here in our head really does travel down and settles into our heart. And so how do we know when head knowledge, yes, this is what I believe, actually has become heart knowledge? There's something there of what we believe that sort of like saturates our, our whole being. And, and that can seem kind of, okay, yeah, right. Um, wouldn't that be great? But I'm not a sponge that you can see that the water can actually saturate me so it can't hold anymore. But what I've seen in myself, my own experience, and in those that I've worked with, is we know that that head knowledge has actually saturated our being. When it's not that we're just proclaiming something's true but when we're actually living as if it's true. So we begin to embody this thing that we learned and that we so desire to believe. And so when we find ourselves in the crucible of life or in ministry, that we can come back to that place and go, oh, yes, yes. This is true, and I really am beginning to live this. And this is such a gradual work. We can see ourselves moving forward and hitting, hitting up against something. Oh gosh, that wasn't, that's not living as if I believe it. But there is something in terms of this being with God, aware of his loving presence with us, and opening ourselves in vulnerability, in authenticity, in touch with our deep desire that allows this work of being seeped in the reality to become true. <coughs> so to begin, I'd like to give you a little exercise to do in the quiet of your self. Don't worry, I'm not at the end going to go, oh, turn to your neighbor and, and share with them what you thought. <laughs> um, it will help, probably, if you close your eyes to do this and just say, you know, okay, Elizabeth, I have no idea what you're going to do, but I'm just going to agree to trust you for a moment, okay? I'd like you to imagine God thinking about you. What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? 
Now to prime the pump of your imagination, picture yourself sitting here in this room. What you're wearing, what it feels like to sit in this chair. How do you feel right now? And then imagine God looking upon you. What do you think God is feeling as you are on his mind? You might think, how on earth can I know what God is feeling? Well, you can't know for sure. But would you trust me for a moment and consider my question anyway? What do you assume God is feeling as you come to mind? If you've come prepared to take notes today, perhaps you would just like to jot down a few words, or phrases. What came to your mind? Now it could be that since we are soaked in the loving presence of God here in this place, that your thoughts in terms of what God was feeling may have been ones of, oh, love and affirmation and approval, sweet thoughts about you. But perhaps because we're looking at this from a little different angle, not about what God has said about you that can affirm you and your sense of being, but how God is feeling about you. It frames it in a little different direction. And perhaps you thought, oh boy, it's more along the lines of disapproval or maybe judgment. Or maybe dis you felt dis-ease about what God might have been thinking about you. Or perhaps even something of shame. And I wonder, once we're back in that crucible of life and ministry, and we're faced with behavior that doesn't reflect this new nature that we've been talking about as we're together, that those, those experiences may really determine our perception of how God perceives us. Does how God looks at me, is it dependent upon what I do? Is it dependent upon what I'm thinking? How well I have measured up? Or are you just fine 
the way you are? Or does God love you deeply? That's in a way that is totally not dependent upon anything that you do or think, any way that you act. So our response to that question is important because it reveals something about our image of God, how we image God. Um, and, you know, we all hold image of God. They've been formed early in our childhood. They've been formed very early in our childhood by our parents and our caregivers. And, and those, some of them are accurate, some of them are not. Um, some were helpful for a time and have become unhelpful and, and we need to shed those, let go of them as well. Um, doing so doesn't mean that God changes, but our perception of God changes as we mature and grow and as God shows more of himself to us. Um, but why I began with this little exercise is because how we perceive God perceiving us has huge consequences for our ability to enter into intimacy with God in vulnerability, in openness, and surrender. And if we look at this topic of intimacy, the powerful pursuit of intimacy, which I didn't even mention when I thought, well, that's maybe what brought you. It's like, what are some essential ingredients, regardless of the activity that might bring us into that, an intimate uh, relationship or an intimate experience with God? I think some essential ingredients are this desire, just desire to be in that intimate place with God. As Andrew said yesterday, as he was introducing the morning, of really being present to God, not just being in the presence of. Are we really ready to, oh, here I am. Um, and of course, in authenticity and vulnerability. And then there's a sense of a willingness to surrender. And I mentioned that in my little summary because that can be a little, feel a little confronting to us, this idea of in intimate um, contact with God to be f fully willing to surrender ourselves. Um, uh, David Benner wrote a book, it's called Surrender to Love. Um, which he begins with this question that I proposed to you. Um, but he says in that book, he says, what a different relationship begins to develop when you realize that God is head over heels in love with you. God is simply giddy about you. He just can't help loving you. And he loves you deeply, recklessly, and extravagantly, just as you are. He's giddy about you. He loves you deeply, recklessly, and extravagantly, just as you are. And why is that important for our developing an intimate relationship with God? Because if surrender is essential, we cannot willingly surrender to someone when, we, when love isn't there. We need to be so confident in the fact that we are loved by our God that we are surrendering to, that it is safe in God's presence, that it is safe to surrender. And so that's really, when we talk about the contemplative, contemplative prayer and tradition, that sense of God relating to us in love is primary. It's like the quintessential way that God relates to us as his children. <laughs>
so David, um, so David Benner by saying that, like, wow, what a different relationship begins to develop when we realize this deep in our being. So, another question. If you were to know deep, deep down that God loves you without condition, that God is actually crazy about you, giddy about you. If you were to know that so deeply that you lived as if it was true, what would be different in your life? For, my, for me, that experience has, that knowledge, as it is sunk in, has opened up a pathways to um, a deeper, deeper level of being known and being embraced and being, um, yes, yeah, supported in life than I had ever known before. Um, and so, um, what I'd like to do, let's see, to, I'm thinking what is a good order here. I think we're doing well. I think I want to talk, I want to go in to, um, talking about um, the dynamic of shame. And then we're going to move into um, a little ex uh, experience of guided prayer, of encountering Jesus. Um, a few years ago, I was reading a delightful little book um, that I've put over on the table here by Lisa Borden. And it, it's called Approaching God, and it's a delightful little book on um, the character of God and kind of different personas that, um, that we can grow to understand God in. God is father, God is mother, God is helper, God is healer. And it's done really, really beautifully. And um, there was a, um, the way she opened up the chapter on God as father, she told a little, little snippet of a, encounter with her own father. She was 18 years old. She was about to travel thousands of mi miles to take on a summer job. And her father um, said to her, as they were standing in the kitchen before she left, you don't have to impress anyone, you know. You're just fine the way you are. And when I read those words and I pictured father and young daughter going off into the white, blue yonder, I pictured that and there was a pang of longing that arose in my heart. Because those words of affirmation, those words of you're just okay the way you are, are words I had never heard from my father or from my mother, either. Um, and there I saw in her, and as she just, just goes through that chapter as well, on how her father was reflecting the heart of God in that moment. You know, you don't have to impress anyone. You're just fine the way you are. And I realized that, wow, in contrast, my um, family of origin was just blanketed in shame. And so as I imagine us going home from this place and wanting to live into these truths about ourselves as being worthy and just fine the way that we are, um, I, I know that there are things that sort of have woven their ways through the fabric of our souls that hinder us from stepping in 
to these truths and really living as if we believe them. And they may be different for different ones of us. There may be elements of fear and anxiety. There may be elements of frustration and anger. There, and, and, but the, the one that I think is pretty universal in one way or another is this matter of shame. And shame has been called the silent epidemic because we don't talk about it. Well, certainly 10 years ago, we didn't talk about it. And then Brené Brown came on the scene. <laughs> and Brené Brown put shame back, well, she put it on the map, and allowed us to talk about it in a way that was really, yeah, identifiable and sort of re or demystifying or de disempowering this concept of shame. Um, but what is shame? Shame's a social emotion that's concerned about how we are regarded by others. It might be real that others really don't regard us well, or it may be imagined that we just think that they don't regard us well. And so it starts in that place of, oh, am I really okay? Or am I defective? Um, Kurt Thompson calls it a silent epidemic in his book, The Story of Shame. And he said, to be human is to be infected with this phenomenon that we call shame. Brené Brown says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance or belonging. We know that that's not true, right? But if we have lived in a culture, especially a family culture, that has bred shame into us, it's incredibly hard to root it out of us. It's a little bit like this weed in my garden. Um, a couple summers ago, I stopped being the real avid gardener I was for one reason or another, and this particular weed, and I don't know, in Dutch it's called seven leave. Do you, does that ring a bell for any of you here? I need to get out my, uh, leaf, my UK leaf app and see what do you call that in English. But it's this mean little thing that has these stems and out of each little stem come these seven leaves. So you can, seven sort of jaggedy leaves so you can see it and recognize it anywhere. And my neighbor, who was watering our garden while we were away two summers ago, said, you've got this seven-leaf thing, and you're in trouble. And, um, and so he gave me this uh, super powerful uh, weed killer thing. Um, and even that, he told me, this weed, it, it goes so deep that it will wind its roots around the roots of all your other plants in the garden. And the only way I could get it out of my garden was to pull up the plants and take those roots off and then replant the plants in clean soil. And I thought, oh my, what am I ever going to do with this seven leaf? Well, I thought I got it this summer, but I'm quite sure that I haven't because it is just so, such an incessant, nasty thing. And shame is exactly that way. It is nasty, and it weaves its way into our sense of being. And how on earth are we supposed to uproot our soul and untangle shame's little nasty roots and put it back in? Well, we can. <laughs> and
And I know no better way to do it than to come into the loving presence of our God who has proclaimed us worthy, who so desires to give us that sense of affirmation that not receiving it or perceiving that we've received it has uh, given birth to shame. And bring that into the presence of God and allow him to do a slow, um, persistent, loving work of releasing us from it. And so, um, I'd like to do um, that with you right now. Not particularly geared towards the shame, because of course, there's so many of you here. I think maybe 180 from how many chairs I heard there were. And your experience is all so different. But what I would like to do is I would like to guide you in a scripture that is really a scripture about intimacy and meeting with our God. Um, and, um, and this kind of prayer um, can, is often called imaginative contemplation. Um, and, um, and so let me tell you a little bit about what I'm going to lead you in and invite you um, to engage in with me and with Jesus. So imaginative contemplation, we, um, it tends to be centered in the Gospels. It doesn't have to be. We can use it at other places in the Bible. Um, but it's particularly powerful because when we engage with a story in the New Testament where Jesus is engaging with real-life people in his time, just like us, and we engage with our sense of what was it like to be there. And so we engage our imagination, we engage our senses, and in order to try and fully, fully sort of enter in to a story. Perhaps like seeing a story being acted out on a stage. But then we don't just leave it there. We then go up on stage, and we actually become a part of the story. And for me, this has been one of my, my favorite ways of engaging in contemplative prayer, um, because it, it helps me to actually meet Jesus right in the here and now of my life. It might start going back to two millennia ago. It doesn't have to. It could be any time of Jesus meeting with real life 21st century people. And then the power of, of it is that is when it actually engages me and opens up the opportunity for me to engage in a conversation with Jesus in the real here and now of my life and the thing that he has um, opened up as I've engaged in this prayer. And so as I do this, as I lead you in this, I'm realizing you all will have your own uh, journey with it. I'll try and do as best as I can to guide you so that you can stay in the place where you need to stay in the story, where you're being invited to stay in the story. Um, and, um, and once again, I just ask that if this is new to you, that you would extend me your trust, and that you would allow me to guide you in this time of prayer. So let me pray for us. Lord, we are all here because we desire deeper intimacy with you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, 
and that you desire deeper intimacy with us. And so Lord, in this room with all of its creaks and in the warmth of this room, Lord, we want to engage with you. So would you provide for us with your loving presence? Would you allow us to let go of distractions and tiredness and anything else that might hinder us? And for these next few minutes, would you open up a pathway for us to engage with you? I'm reading from Luke 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So once again, with your imagination, just picture a home where Jesus and his disciples arrive at. It's a home of friends. And so, Try to imagine and to feel the emotions that may have been surrounding his arrival. Perhaps joy, enthusiasm. Just to begin, what else? Picture the welcome as Mary and Martha and also their brother Lazarus welcomed Jesus and his disciples. Perhaps there were women in the crowd, as we know that women traveled with Jesus. So they're greeted. They're welcomed. And as they settle, Mary knows where she wants to be. And she settles herself at Jesus' feet. She follows her desire and she won't be moved. So can you see it? Feel it. Imagine the exchanges. What it's like to sit and receive from Jesus. Imagine what that was like and what that did for Mary.
Now as the scene continues, you may choose to just stay with Mary. Stay kind of in that place with her where she is listening to what is happening and what her sister says and what Jesus says. And just keep with her if you feel drawn to do so. Stay with her. But if you feel a real identification with Martha, or you feel drawn to go and imagine her in her experience, then come with me. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. We can tend to be so hard on Martha. Just imagine, this was a crowd that had just descended upon her home. Put yourself in Martha's shoes as she was expressing her love for Jesus by taking care of the hospitality needs of his crowd. Can you feel her heart? Can you imagine her desire? Can you imagine what was underneath the pressure that began to build in her? Eventually, it built so strong she couldn't contain it any longer. And so she bursts into this room, the main room, or perhaps it was outside. And she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. What do you hear in Martha's voice? What's your own feeling about Martha or towards Martha? And then Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, my dear Martha. You are worried and upset about many things. What do you imagine was in Jesus' eyes when he looked at her? Martha, few things are needed, or indeed only Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So let's just stay with Martha for a moment. As Jesus looks on her with eyes of love, as he looks upon us. What do you imagine happened within Martha? Maybe follow the, the thread of emotions that you might imagine you would have felt if you were her. What do 
you think Jesus' desire was for Martha and his invitation for her? yourself that it's you there with the things that cause you to be worried and distracted and focus more on the task of working out your love for Jesus or whatever else it may be place yourself there with your choice of having tended to the task at hand And can you see Jesus looking upon you with eyes of love and compassion? What does he want to say to you? Would you like to respond? Stay in that place, and we're going to go back to those of you who stayed with Mary. Perhaps you've already felt what Mary felt as she heard those words of accusation from her sister. And those words of, why aren't you here helping me? Maybe you already imagined what it was like to receive Jesus' words of affirmation. As he said, Mary has chosen what is better. So how about you? Imagine you are there with Jesus. What does Jesus communicate to you through his loving gaze? And what do his words do within you? Jesus, or the Father, or the Holy Spirit in this way, the work can be quite profound in the moment. Deep healing can happen in the moment. 
just as we experience deep healing happening when we're in a setting such as this. And deep healing can happen probably more often in a very gradual way as day by day or week by week we open ourselves up to experience God loving us to speaking out words of affirmation over us when we come in our vulnerability and whatever it is that we feel weighed down by that day whether it be the roots of shame or any other thing. Um, so, um, over time, the transformation can be profound and deep. Um, as we just give assent to this work of being with God. Um, and so, um, I just, I think one last thing, and then I'd like to open up, I'd open it up to questions in the time that we have left. Um, if we look at uh, the whole realm of contemplative prayer, um, there's so many things that, uh, so many ways of engaging in prayer, and, and this is just one example of that. Um, there's kind of three elements to contemplative prayer that can, I think, have, have this, a powerful effect regardless of where we are, of who we are in our temperament and our personhood. And that is uh, silence, solitude, and stillness. And it's it's kind of hard to actually separate those things because, you know, we tend to, tend to say, oh, I'm seeking silence and solitude. They tend to be one thing. Um, and yet, they, they have a little bit of a different emphasis. And so I'd just like to, to share a little bit about each one of those and how one of those might seem to ring a bell for you as, oh, that could be particularly life-giving for me. For me, I tend to be a person who by nature um, shifts into the Martha mode very quickly. If there's a task to be done, or if I sit down beside you, I may actually address the task first, and then I'll settle in for a deep conversation. <laughs> I will often just go, oh boy, the, the tasks are never done. And so for me, embracing stillness is so life-giving. When I go, you know what? Work will never be done. And so when I prioritize actually laying aside the work and saying, you know what? I'm going to go and join Mary at Jesus' feet instead of thinking about what I need to do, I'm just going to prioritize doing that. And when I spent, I actually sat about a week with this passage and just let it speak to me, however it was speaking to me that day. And it was like, I believe that. For me, it was like Jesus was saying, yeah, Martha, you can come out of the kitchen and then we will be really happy to go and do those preparations together. You can let that task go and just and come and join in on the beauty of being still with me. Well, for some of us, and this may be for those especially who went, oh yeah, I also feel like I've been covered with a blanket of shame. Solitude might be the, the practice that speaks life to you. Where you're like, oh, I'm, it's so hard for me to not hear those voices of disapproval because I just need them so much. 
And oh, those voices, even in my own head, of I'm not worthy are so strong. And so if that's our issue, and I experience that too, then to come out of the crowd and draw away from those voices for which I'm so dependent upon for their approval, and to say, you know, God, I, I'm just going to be here with you so I can hear your words of approval to me. May your voice be stronger than these other voices, whether they be voices in my head from my past or voices in my head you know, from without or within. Um, and for others um, of us, um, silence may be, the, may be the practice that seems most life-giving for us. And this may be helpful for you in particular if you notice it is so hard to shut down your head because your thoughts are always going. And you, you can't shut down the ideas and the way that you, want to, you think you can problem solve something. And yet, if that's the way you, if that's what you recognize in yourself, then the silence, becoming silent, as hard as it seems, may be the biggest gift for you. Um, pretty hard for us to hear from God when we can't silence the inner chatter. As we step out and say, this is so hard, but oh boy, I'm just going to practice really being silent before God. I'm going to just, just try and let those thoughts settle in my head. Then who knows what doors may open up for us to hear from God on a deeper level than we normally do. And I know I'm speaking to people who are pros at hearing from God. But I hope that this perspective on this may, may kind of go, oh, yeah, maybe that's one practice that seems to resonate something with me. And so I want to leave it there. We still have five minutes before we officially close this time. And are there questions that you would like to ask? <coughs> we delineate between stillness and silence and and you know it's hard to delineate specifically between them because they do kind of come in a package together I think it, it has something to do with maybe what we notice in ourselves as a, a drive um, and for myself who can tend to be action oriented um, and it's hard to actually stay in my chair because I want to hop up and take care of the things that need my attention. Or is it um, if thoughts are more what are going around in my head and, and therefore it's not more the action that, I, that um, this prayer could help me to work against, but rather stealing the incessant thoughts in my head. And it's, it's hard to identify, to really delineate because with action is also thoughts, but... Yes? How do we practice 
really being silent and silencing our own thoughts and our own um, part of the, the dialogue. What a great question. Um, and it is not easy. Um, what are, I wonder what are our uh, convictions about um, uh, dialogue with God? And um, we know, I know this is a, a culture, we really believe that God speaks and we can hear God. Um, and, and that God wants to speak to us. And so, do we miss what he speaks because we're so busy asking or talking or expressing what we desire from him? And so, I think for me, there's been a sense of, of sort of settling with this, my assumption that um, if I don't, don't get quiet, I might not hear. That I may, God may be saying, could you give me some space? <laughs> like, do you, could we have a dialogue? And so then with that, it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice being quiet in the expectation that God may want to impart something from me. And perhaps that's not even him talking words all the time, but rather when I actually get silent and open myself up to his presence that he can impress something deep within me that is beyond words. And so I think in the contemplative there's an, there's an awareness and an invitation to perhaps go beyond words in our experience with God. <coughs> um, um, you mentioned at the start of some of that, like, the presence of God is a very safe place. Um, and I think something that can vary for me, and uh, maybe for people, uh, is that sometimes when I read the Bible, and um, people experience of being in the presence of God is quite terrifying. Um, and you look at kind of how Moses. And I realize our time is done, so feel free to leave, and I'll, I'll just uh, answer this question, um, and then we'll we'll be done. Um, yeah, it's a um, big question. How do we reconcile maybe the fear of God and the love of God? Um, and it's a question I had in my first draft of this um, that is addressed in a book that I have over there that has formed this um, seminar called um, God's Unconditional Love, Healing Our Shame by Wilkie and Noreen Au. And um, one of the premises that they make, and that I'm seeing coming through all of our teachings this weekend, is that God's primary, ultimate way of relating with us is through his love, an unconditional love. And that we can count on that. And it has a lot to do with Jesus coming and being the fullness of, of God for us. And that, that fear is, is, can, is awe of God and, and the wonder of the, the majesty and the mystery of God. Um, and um, but the primacy of the love of God is really what embeds the possibility of doing what we're doing, what we're talking about today. Because if we don't believe we're safe in God's presence, it's pretty impossible for us to really be real and open and 
totally available in vulnerability to him. So um, if that's a, a question to um, yeah, explore some more, you might want to grab that book, have a look, and, and uh, see, because he goes into that deeper. Thank you so much for your attention and participation today. May God bless you.